I'm Chris Alvarez, and welcome to Spacewalks Money Talks, where we talk about the business, technology, and policy of space exploration and commercialization. We're on the web at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. We're on YouTube at Spacewalks Money Talks. You can email suggestions and comments to info at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. Thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Dr. Franz Vanderdunk, founder of Black Holes, uh, consultancy on space law. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> Thank you for speaking with me. Sure, my pleasure. So first, uh, let me ask you, how long has your business existed and uh, what does it focus on? Um, it depends a little bit on how you uh, how you define it, of course, but I started engaging in these consultancy activities in the field of space law and space applications actually already in the late 1990s mm-hmm. in an earlier position at the Leiden University where apart from academic um, teaching and research on issues of space law, we also started to advise outside clients. And then at some point in time in 2007, I decided for a number of reasons that I uh, preferred doing that for myself on my own, so I created my company. Mm-hmm. And in terms of what I do, well, it's basically providing advice and, and consultancy and, if necessary, tutorials on, on any aspects of the legal aspects of space activities and major space applications, such as satellite navigation or satellite remote sensing, to any client that is interested in, in, in hearing um, these legal ramifications, uh, presumably because they want to do something with it. If the client is a commercial company, he wants to know what limitations and liabilities are out there if he is going to uh, develop his particular business plans and, if necessary, how he can go about maximizing his opportunities within the realm of law and regulation or probably even try to lobby for better law and regulation if that is uh, occurring. If the client is a government, and I have had many governments as clients as well, I can help them implement the international obligations resulting from their participation in the space treaties on the national level. So there's at least a half a dozen countries where I have helped one way or another to write the national space legislation. Uh, And there are intergovernmental organizations or other entities who also have certain plans or certain interests or want to promote certain activities and they they want to use the law to support what they're doing. So they come to me to advise. So um, between the various aspects that exist in this uh, technology, policy, legal, um, and, and perhaps business practices, um, how do you balance it? What, what would you say your strengths are and where do you bring in maybe others uh, for additional um, support between those four different um, aspects? Yeah. Well, the clear answer to that is that I'm my, my, my prime expertise is in the legal field. So um, if, if somebody wants uh, an economic analysis of a future market, um, I wouldn't be the proper uh, consultant to help him or her with that. Um, but having said that, of course, in the course of this, this more than 20 years of practice, um, in the field of space law, in particular law and policy, and then increasingly also business uh, and general economics are, are coming in uh, quite closely together. So in, in, in discussing legal aspects, you have to be aware of certain of the business implications and the plans out there and the 
the, some of the overarching projects which try to develop new markets. Um, but it is for me, it's all from a legal angle, and the same applies to uh, to the technology side. Of course, I'm not an engineer; I could never build a satellite. Uh, I couldn't even explain in detail how, how it would be built. On the other hand, I need to know at least the general uh, things that a satellite can do and that a satellite cannot do in order for my advice to to be to be relevant. If you have no clue of of how a satellite works in general, you know you can't give a valid analysis of the potential legal ramifications and liabilities and things like that. Mm-hmm. So let me uh, ask about some of the topics I mentioned in my email. Um, as far as uh, sharing of space resources, you know, I, I guess it's supposed to be a, co- a communal sharing of, you know, the moon or Mars when humans eventually get there, um, or even anything in space, asteroids. Um, how do you see that progressing into the future? Do you, th- do you see um, international cooperation or, or do you see sort of, uh, conflict? Yeah. Well, when it comes to this particular subject that you are broaching space mining, that is still very much an open question because that is, you know, just the last five or seven years that has become something which is really has attracted the interests of a number of companies and a number of governments. So the, the answer there is pretty open. And of course, I can only hope. That it will uh, that it will move into the direction of international cooperation rather than conflict, and to some extent, I have hopes that it does go in that direction. But we are not there yet, and there are certainly a number of countries in this regard who have their own political uh, interests in in certain outcomes of these discussions. Who who may therefore, if if things really get bad. Um, engage in, in conflicts, not necessarily that yet um, military conflicts, because that's probably the ultimate mm-hmm. step, but at least uh, political conflicts, economic conflicts, etc., etc. Um, why am I relatively optimistic? Because I do see that a couple of countries have now basically agreed that the, um, the proper legal way forward is to allow private enterprise in principle to go there if they're willing to invest all the money, as long as they remain within certain international legal parameters. They should uh, guarantee a certain level of safety of their operations because, of course, we don't want uh, launch catastrophes uh, happening. They should uh, be respectful of the interests of all humankind, for example, in the scientific area, in, 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 in wherever they're going, be it the moon or asteroids or any other place. They should be careful in not destroying, uh, if you talk about the moon, for example, they should be careful in not destroying the footprints of Neil Armstrong and Bezoldrin. Those are the kinds of things. Um, and, and again, I think that we might see, hopefully within the next five to ten years, a global consensus that that is the appropriate way to go. And if you talk about these types of ventures, coming to your point on the international cooperation, mm-hmm. um, we're talking about multi-billion dollars before you're even getting there. So it's, it's, it's almost inevitable that on the one hand, the entrepreneurs, the pioneers, the visionaries who try this are looking all over the world for money and investment and not just limit themselves to, to, to fellow countrymen or women. Uh, and probably even more importantly, are looking for the whole world as their market. Because if you invest billions in, uh, in, for example, mining an asteroid with the intention to bring platinum back to Earth, 
you don't want legal rules or political obstacles in the way of uh, put be put in the way of of trying to sell that globally. If your markets are for political reasons limited to, for example, just the United States, well, that's not what you want. You want the world for a market, which also requires a level of international cooperation. What are the uh, international organizations in place that are leading the way in developing these these policy and law international? Yeah. Let me start by saying that leading the way is probably not the operative verb, because in the international community, um, states are sovereign, uh, which means that if we want to move the whole thing forward on a global scale, we need to at least have the main international players, um, the United States, Russia, China, United Kingdom, Germany, France, Brazil, India, and, and maybe 10 or 15 other countries, more or less on the same page. And of course, then you do have some international structures which serve as a conduit, as a platform for these countries to try and engage in some discussion and hopefully come to a compromise. But it's not like these organizations themselves sort of lead the way. Uh, the, the, the best example is actually the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, which is a committee of the United Nations comprised of all, basically all the states of the United Nations who have a serious interest in outer space. And, and again, it encompasses all the major countries that I mentioned before. So it's not just limited, for example, to the Western uh, developed countries only. So it is a fair reflection of the global interests, if, if you will. And that's the forum where the moment you get into discussions, for example, about space mining and, you know, to what extent is that legal? Um, should there be additional law uh, preserving certain interests of humankind? Those kind of questions. That's where COPORS is the appropriate platform to discuss that. And that's where, over time, we have seen a number of treaties emanate from, uh, as well as more more uh, more flexible and less legally binding guidelines and recommendations, which still serve to sort of guide uh, where states think, where the main states think that space exploration and use should go. I'm speaking with Professor of Space Law, Dr. Franz Vanderdunk. He's Director of Space Law Consultancy Black Holes. And the website for that is black-holes.eu. If you're enjoying this podcast, please like it on whatever podcast feed you're listening to. And also please visit spacewalksmoneytalks.com and at YouTube, Spacewalks Money Talks. And please like and follow me on those sites. Now back to our podcast. So when thinking about um, Earth orbits, you know, satellites or even space stations, um, what if... When someone plans, a country plans to put up a st space station, or let's say a business wants to put up satellites, uh, what what um, what restrictions do they have uh, legally, like at, in the international realm, as far as right. where they can, you know, what orbits and and whatnot right. they can place stuff in? Well, that's one example where, because of the nature of things, we do have an international organization. In this case, it's not the UN, it's the ITU, which plays a much more profound role in practice, although even there, ultimately, uh, it depends upon the states. To, to answer your question more directly, first of all, as a company, you need the consent of your own state. If your own state doesn't want you to operate a satellite, uh, it'll, it won't go anywhere. It, it will 
legally and practically be impossible to actually do that. Once you have the state on your side, uh, once, for example, Pan Am said, uh, tells the, the U.S. authorities, we want another satellite to conduct more uh, satellite communication business, and the U.S. authorities, the U.S. government is basically uh, positively inclined because it's good for the economy and it's good for the people, etc., etc., then the U.S., is going to take steps in the context of the International Telecommunication Union. Um, and it's, it's a long story, which I'll try to summarize in, in a few words. But the, the point is that the U.S. then makes a proposal on behalf of, in my case, PENMSAT for the use of specific frequencies and an orbital slot or orbits. And then in the ITU context, it goes through a whole process of coordination, basically checking with any other country do you have a problem with, with this proposal? If Pan Am said is going to go ahead, does it mean that they will interfere with your operation because of the frequency or because of the location that they want a satellite to operate on? And long story short, uh, it's first come, first serve in most cases. So if there is someone who already has a satellite in that orbital slot that Pan Am said looks for, or has a frequency which is too close to that so that there will be interference, then U.S. read Panem said have to go back to the drawing board because ultimately they have to get to a proposal where the frequencies in the orbits do not lead to any interference problems as expected by anyone else. And once they are at that point, they will be given the authority to operate that frequency and that slot for at least 25 years. Hmm. And then, of course, they can benefit from the prohibition of late comer, of late of comers who are still later than them that they are not entitled to interfere as well. So if two years after that somebody else wants the same frequency, then Penham said through the U.S. authorities can say, sorry, we have already taken that one, and, and of course we can't have two uh, operations on the same frequency because then, then both are white noise. That, that's sort of how it works. Now, thinking ahead to space tourism, um, how would uh, how would they? what would be a good way to manage if let's say there are a couple companies that start launching, you know, launching vehicles into space so that tourists can orbit the earth for, you know, a few orbits and then come back down. How, how would something like that be managed? Would there be outer space? You know, how, how countries have airspace, would there be outer space, you know, boundaries? Yeah. Yeah. No, principally there would be not. So if, if the tourist, let's say, let's take the example, departs from the United States, uh, gets into outer space by only traversing U.S. airspace, so assume he's not first going over Canada over Mexi or Mexico before he enters into outer space, but goes straight up or, or over the ocean, enters into outer space, then, as you say, makes a few orbit. If he then lands in the United States as well, it is essentially an operation which is completely... Uh, at liberty for the U.S. authorities to handle because the launching place and the place of re-entry is U.S. The company is presumably uh, U.S. and even if it's not U.S. because it launches from the U.S., the U.S. can regulate it to any level that it wants. It can completely prohibit it or uh, support it in whatever way it wants. So there's no need for international law to deal with that because um, contrary to airspaces, Outer space is free for everyone. It's it's comparable to the high seas. So it's not like any particular state can say, well, I don't like you, the United States, allowing 
um, SpaceX to do that. In, uh, once you're in outer space, subject to a few boundary conditions, everyone is free to do what they want. Um, it becomes different when it's not really space tourism anymore, but when it actually starts to be transportation. Uh, you may have heard there are some plans already on the drawing board to use these space vehicles uh, to fly from New York to Tokyo, not in 12 hours, but in two, mm. because they uh, they don't level off at 15,000 feet, but they continue into outer space where they can fly much faster because of the lack of air. And then they dip back into the airspace just short of Japan, and that way you can save 10 hours on a 12-hour flight. Um, now, if you're going to do that, of course, things start to get difficult, different because then, obviously, as an American operator, you also need the uh, approval of the Japanese authorities for doing that. But I think that's still some ways off. So the current thinking is, oh, we don't need to bother yet with, with arranging for that. Mm-hmm. Thinking ahead, once, assume the, assuming the moon starts to become colonized, um, do, can you see it being partitioned amongst various countries? Not, not, maybe not permanent boundaries, but, you know, we'll use this space, you use that space, you know, we're, we're almost de facto, the moon starts to become, um, split up among different countries. Yeah, yeah. Well, that is a, that is a very intriguing question and, um, the risk is certainly there. What I can say right now is that, legally speaking, partitioning the moon is is a no-go area. The, 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 the most important space treaty, which is actually recognized by all the spacefaring nations, so not just the U.S., but again, you can name all the others as well, uh, specifically prohibits any state of partitioning out part of the moon and saying, well, this is my territory. Uh, and, and when... Uh, the U.S. Apollo astronauts planted the U.S. flags on the moon. Uh, the U.S. authorities and uh, NASA went to great lengths to say, well, this doesn't mean that we claim the moon for the United States or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is just to honor the U.S. taxpayer. Um, so legally speaking, um, you cannot claim as a country any part of the moon as kind of an outlying colony. Now, on the other hand, the freedom of activity on the moon in principle does include the freedom to build establishments, settlements, moon bases. So that that brings up an interesting but complex question. At what point in time is such a settlement becoming so permanent as to sort of morph into actual uh, uh, land grab or actual colonization? There is no clear-cut answer to that. Uh, I could say that if the moon base is there for a few weeks or a few months, maybe even a few years, it shouldn't be too much of a problem. And if these people then leave and go back, then the moon is open again to that particular part of the moon even is open to anyone else who cares to get there. But as long as, of course, it remains occupied, there are also certain rights of the occupants to uh, safety zones. Um, They should be open to foreign control. That's also an explicit requirement of the treaties, but that has to be announced a little bit in advance, etc., etc. But if you have a settlement which is there for 200 years, just to quote a figure, um, then at some point in time you may indeed get get the discussion, well, uh, are we now not effectively a colony of one or the other country on Earth? So the answer to that is, is unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I don't know, is not yet available. Is there anything in place as far as how much 
I don't think so. How much can be taken from outer space? Like thinking of an asteroid or the moon, you know, what if you just went, went there temporarily? And again, this is all speculation in, in the future, but, um, thinking ahead, let's say you wanted to, um, mine a huge part of the moon, like you're digging out chunks of it. You quarry huge parts of the moon to the point where you alter the landscape. You know, are there, what rules are there in places, you know, as far as how much a country or a business could take? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And actually, you already sort of gave away the answer. There is no particular regulation on that. When, when they drafted the treaties, which dealt with it at a summary version back in the 60s and early 70s, nobody fathomed that real space mining would be an issue. So they didn't say anything about export, commercial exportation of the moon. They only said that, of course, exploration and digging up a few moonstones is not a problem at all. And that's what the Apollo astronauts actually did, and nobody protested that. But, of course, we're talking about, you know, in total, I think, a few hundred pounds of moon rocks that were brought back, not more. So nothing to the extent of what you describe of altering the landscape, and not just perhaps only the landscape, but at a certain point also the orbit. If if you are able to relieve the moon of, say, 5% of its net mass, you change its orbital parameters as well, and you can imagine what an effect that might have on the ebb and, and flow of the tides back on Earth and on, on all sorts of religions which pay... Uh, great attention to the moon in terms of the moon cycles and stuff like that, but nothing has been arranged on that. And when it comes to the moon, I should say, before you're in that range of being able to carve out so much from the moon that you actually fundamentally change its mass, I think neither you nor I will live to see that (laughs) if it ever happens. Mm -hmm. But... When it comes to asteroids, who can be much, much, much smaller, some of them are just, you know, tens or hundreds of meters in size, then it becomes a totally different ball game, And that's why you currently have this discussion going on in the international arena, to what extent, indeed, in particular private companies, would be entitled to grab an asteroid, empty it of all its valuable contents, or even take it back to Earth in order to empty it there, and then try to make a lot of money doing so. And that goes back to my earlier remark. Uh, Until 10 years ago, nobody took these plans really seriously, but then you saw suddenly at least two U.S. companies who had serious plans to do that, um, and they uh, sort of chartered the U.S. government to provide some legal certainty to what they were doing, and that sort of kicked off the dust in the international arena where some countries were starting to think, oh, this might be a good idea, maybe we could profit. For example, the small country of Luxembourg uh, was immediately on board almost. And other countries, for example, Russia, for, I should say, ulterior reasons, said, wait a minute, what the Americans are doing here is, 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 not, is, is not allowable. So going back to my earlier remark, there might be a conflict over this in the political realm where the Russians are basically saying, what the Americans allow these companies to do in the future, because obviously they're not there yet. But what they allow them to do in the future is principally wrong. Uh, this belongs to all of humankind, etc., etc. And the U.S. and Luxembourg and a few other countries said, no, the area belongs to everyone, just like the high seas. But that doesn't mean that you can, as an individual state, not benefit from the area, just as you can fish the high seas without having to share all the fish with the rest of the world. So that's, again, going back to an earlier question of yours, that's the kind of conflict, the international discussion, which to some extent is going on right now. 
but and part of that has to do with the fact that there is no clear cuts. Um, going back to your other question, there's no clear cut regulation or law saying how far you can empty the moon or an asteroid of contents. Mm-hmm. Let me uh, switch to um, space travel. I know that in the past that they've um, scientists have theorized about creating engines that rely on nuclear bombs to propel ships or spaceships faster and further into deep space. And um, that's not possible. That sort of testing isn't possible because of treaties on, on the use of nuclear power in space. Do you see any changes in that regard? Um, have you, have you heard anything about that? Yeah. Well, let's be, let's be precise that what is prohibited is any nuclear explosion. Hmm. If you are able to use nuclear technology for propulsion without disqualifying as an explosion, it is valid, and there actually is a UN set of, dec- uh, of, of principles, a declaration, which uh, the UN is not able to impose law, so it's not a legally binding document, but it has a certain political authority. Uh, it is certainly something that the states agree to at a political level, so there's a certain tendency and stimulation emanating from the document to uh, continue to act in compliance with that. And that particular document not only condones the use of nuclear power for propulsion, but actually provides then for some safety guidelines. So it basically says uh, it, it is okay if you use nuclear propulsion, but please do it in a very careful manner for obvious reasons. And then this is what careful manner means, uh, A, B, C, and D. And I, of course, I don't want to go into the details right now. So if it's that kind of um, uh, use of nuclear technology, it is even allowed. But you're right, a, a, a true explosion is not feasible. Now, that is by current treaty law. So if at some point in time uh, the scientists would come to develop a technology whereby you can use a a nuclear bomb so safely, um, you know, that, that people say, well, why don't we use it? Of course, the leading countries in the world can then uh, ask for a change of the relevant treaty. They're, they're all, all treaties are potentially subject to amendments um, because circumstances changed, rationales changed, technological developments changed. So the fact that currently all nuclear explosions in space are prohibited doesn't mean that 50 years from now that would still be the case. And, and if 50 years from now, again, the scientists would have uh, developed a safe way of using a nuclear bomb to do that, then they that would probably constitute a pretty strong argument for trying to change uh, the law and get rid of that particular obligation or prohibition. So it seems that, um, so right now that any changes in law are dependent on, they, they'll only change once the technology arrives or, or you know, the issue becomes um, pertinent at that point in time. Right. In in the past, decades ago, did, were, was there more lawmaking for future issues and now it seems as though there's not. Um, I don't see a fundamental change in that regard. I mean, what, what I, I would the way I look at it is that when in the 1960s, uh, because of the space race basically between the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, it was clear that there was much more and more activity going on in space. And of course, there were sometimes there were the wildest visions about. Uh, 
circulating space stations housing hundreds of thousands of people or permanent moon bases and much of that hasn't come to fruition yet but because of the possibilities seen at that point in time the leading states of the world essentially the soviet union and the united states just came together and tried to map a certain legal framework a certain way of 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 dealing with those things which presumably everybody would comply with now the the nice thing of the outer space treaty which is the seminal treaty in this regard going back to 1967 is that it is fairly succinct and fairly general but also fairly comprehensive and um, you could almost compare it to the US constitution which is more than 200 years old and it's not a huge document but it still leads the way in spite of an enormous amount of technological developments which were not around at the time uh, that the constitution was drafted and that actually nobody foresaw at that point in time but the basic principles as long as phrased in 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 an sufficiently abstract manner could still be used to chart how particular substantive law would apply and i think that applies from 1967 to outer space as well so there are a number of developments since then which the drafters in the 60s had never foreseen or certainly not foreseen in those details and with those specific technologies but where in 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 trying to arrange for that we still hark back to these general principles because they generally serve this very well so it is a matter more of implementation and adaptation rather than saying well, at a certain point well now now we are completely lost this is, this doesn't make sense anymore and certainly in, when it comes to space we have not come to that conclusion yet Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Professor of Space Law, Dr. Franz Vonderdunk. He's Director of Space Law Consultancy Black Holes, and the website for that is black-holes.eu. If you're enjoying this podcast, please like it on whatever podcast feed you're listening to, and also please visit spacewalksmoneytalks.com and at YouTube, Spacewalks Money Talks, and please like and follow me on those sites. Now back to our podcast. Um, let me turn towards your specific work. Are there any uh, programs or initiatives that you've worked on recently or currently that you might like to mention? Well, you know, I'm, I'm a professor, so if you get if you start me talking, <laughs> I won't stop for the next two hours. <laughs> but uh, more seriously, uh, both as a as a professor here and as a consultant. Uh, one of the great fun parts of space law is, is going back actually to our previous subject is that there's constant change going around so you are constantly forced to think about new ways new approaches to law and how to how to make that work in an efficient and acceptable manner so some of my projects uh, recent projects are advising uh, newcomers in the field of uh, space on how they could draft their national space laws in order to attract business. I was involved in the Luxembourg law, which I briefly referred to before. Uh, another recent client of mine was the United Arab Emirates, which, as a matter of fact, a few weeks ago have uh, finally enunciated a law in which I had a considerable amount of input a few years ago and what that law should say and what it should not say and how it should relate to international law, etc., etc., and I find those fascinating developments because I'm, of course, only flying in from the perspective of international space law and space activities. And I'm talking to people who over there 
who come it from the come into it from the angle well so far uh, our wealth is based on oil that's presumably going to change in the next couple of decades uh, either because we run out of oil or the world economy sh uh, shifts away from fossil fuels or most likely both and we want the money that we now still have available to invest in uh, in technologies and and areas where 50 years from now we can also be a leading partner and space is one of them and And that is a totally different angle from me coming in as an international lawyer, say, well, you signed up to the Outer Space Treaty, you signed up to the Liability Convention, and this is what it means. So the, so the meeting of those various strands, and then in come some of the companies who are, of course, always weary of too much regulation, um, and you still have to convince them that regulation can actually also be good for them, depending, on, of course, on the substance of the regulation. In, in the case of the Arab world, There's other things uh, which you are not used to as a Westerner. For example, the, the, uh, I mentioned it to some extent, the religious role that the moon is playing. Well, that might mean that from a religious... I mean, the moon plays a big role in Islam, right? It determines when the Ramadan starts, and, and it, it is a... Well, it's a, a holy celestial body, if you will. So, obviously, that informs the extent to which these countries view the legality of going to the moon. And, and then in Kamai, with my, my sort of Western uh, legal mind, and somehow, uh, you know, we have to come some, to some result which, as much as possible, suits all minds in, involved. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I never thought of that. That's, that's an interesting point. Do you know, are there any um, national... Uh, U.S. state or international initiatives um, that you think will be uh, beneficial or useful to space business in general? Do you see anything percolating? Yeah, a lot of things, actually. I think uh, we spoke about space mining already a little bit. It, it, it is often a case of two steps forward and one step back. I think we're now in the one step back phase because the two companies which were pretty gung-ho two years ago are now going through some financial restructuring and are temporarily at least focusing elsewhere. Um, but I think once, once space mining, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that 10 years from now, uh, whether it's the same companies or someone else, this will be picked up again uh, because space mining is not only about bringing stuff back from outer space to Earth, much more importantly, actually, it is for using it in space itself which takes away the need to carry all that from the Earth into outer space, which is the, by far the most expensive part of any space activity, to get out of the gravity force of Earth. So if mankind, humankind, is indeed to expand to the Moon or Mars or, or things like that, we need to find ways to use the resources which are already there, uh, because it's much cheaper to mine once you get you know how to do it and once you get your stuff there, It's much cheaper to mine uh, minerals on the moon, for example, than to shoot every kilogram into outer space mining Earth, even apart from the environmental and the other considerations. So mining is a very important thing. Space tourism, um, and that may sound a little bit, uh, a little bit strange in the sense that you think of tourism as, as you know, just playing into the need uh, of a few millionaires or billionaires to have fun. But, of course, the bottom line is that they pay, ultimately, for the development of technologies, which could make access to space much cheaper, mm -hmm. which also goes back, for example, to my earlier point, that once you can 
make access to space much cheaper than it is currently, it is much more feasible to get there also to bring heavy machinery to start mining or to create habitats for humankind outside of Earth. But it also may result in quicker, uh, in, in quicker cross, uh, cross Earth flights where you don't have the exhaust lingering in the atmosphere because the largest part of your flight is in outer space. So, uh, space tourism is not, is, is only when you look at it from a short-sighted perspective, is only about serving the interests of a few rich uh, people to have some fun because most of the space tourism is basically a kind of sophisticated bungee jumping. Yeah. <laughs> but it also results in the development, hopefully at least, of technology which has a much broader uh, application. And I mean, that's the way aviation developed uh, a century ago as well. The first flights were all about, you know, the, these barnstorming flights where people would pay a few dollars to make a ride of half an hour in, a, in an aircraft above their own hometown somewhere in the Midwest. And then the technology starts to get used, and now we can use it to fly all over the world and visit foreign countries and do this, that, and the other. So space tourism is another area. Um, what I see as very important is the use of remote sensing to control uh, environmental degradation and landslides and things like that. I think that's going to be a very important part of our human future, the use of... Uh, broadband satellites for worldwide internet, uh, the use of satellites for navigation of cars and aircraft with, so that we can cut out the, the fallible human uh, being from all these control systems. So there's, there's a lot of very interesting stuff going on there. Do you see, do you see any um, policy or legal cha challenges for the development of space business or or even space technology. Do you do you know of anything that maybe should be fixed or or uh, gotten rid of in in policy or, or law? Yeah, well, policy not so much policy and law actually. The, the only thing that uh, I would at, at this high level of, of of the discussion would say, well, of course, ideally speaking, we would create kind of a uh, a globalized working place get rid of uh, all the uh, idiosyncratic national preferences and, and, and stuff like that, because ultimately if you look at humankind as one species, it's in the general interest of humankind not to have all these uh, petty trade conflicts and, and all these, these nationalist uh, trade wars going on, but you know as well as I do that in particular in the current time frame, we do see a backlash against globalization and free trade, uh, which has even, uh, as you know, uh, has come home to the United States, which used to be the champion of free enterprise, but is now in a number of respects saying, well, free enterprise, my uh, dot, 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 uh, only if it serves our direct interests. And otherwise, we're just going to slam uh, import sanctions, etc. So this may not be the right moment of saying that, but ultimately business, I'm convinced, is most uh, benefited by doing away with unnecessary trade barriers. But that's a long shot. Um, at a shorter turn, what is a much more important threat I would see to also the business is the fact of space junk uh, amassing in outer space which, if we don't start doing about something about that soon, may make it become much more expensive, much more risky to, uh, to launch your satellite and use it for all sorts of valuable operations. 
Um, now, that's not just a legal problem. Actually, uh, it's more of a technical and a financial problem than a legal problem. Uh, but the law should play a certain role in, in, in addressing that issue as well. I'm not sure this is the answer you were expecting, but it's the best I can give at this stage. No, no, it's, a, it's good. It's good. As far as uh, um, state funding of space business or just the space industry, um, do you think funding right now, at least from what you've seen from your vantage point, do you see governments doing enough funding? There could always be more, of course, but do you think right. there's right. a fair amount or is it just too small now? Or, or, or what do you see in general? I think I would say it's a fair amount, and and um, it has actually been growing over the last few years. Um, and again, it's it's most interesting and illustrating that uh, you know again the United States, which is also which has always been uh, again the champion of free enterprise and and business is something for the private sector. The government should only you know step back as much as possible and just provide for an a relevant legal framework, and that's it. But that in space, even in the United States, you now see billion-dollar investments through NASA being funneled into the private sector developing these space technologies, these space transportation technologies, whether it's SpaceX or Blue Origin or, 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 or Boeing, um, because uh, there is an, an, an overarching understanding that by helping the private sector with these startup funds, uh, and, and they're usually matching. I mean, the companies come up with billions themselves as well, so it's not all government money, but it's kind of a match that you need this match to really kickstart a development, which maybe 10 or 20 or 30 years in the future, then the government financially can back off because then the industry is maturing and uh, the private sector can fully take care of itself. So I think that that tells you that how much in space the investment of governments is still needed and investment in a financial sense as well. And, and again, there are, of course, historical parallels. Back in the days, uh, the U.S. government developed the, the, the railroad system, uh, and then when it started to roll, literally, um, it could be handed to the private sector and, and a blossoming world economy was the result. And something like that might happen in space as well. One of the... Uh, concerns I have, and maybe it's just uh, from the U.S. and not internationally, is having enough engineers or scientists to create the new te technologies. You know, the U.S. seems to have a problem with developing young people into engineers, um, you know, having the right programs in place. And since you're a professor, you might have an opinion on this. Do you see that just as a U.S. problem or internationally? Are we going to have, are we growing enough scientists? developing enough scientists yeah yeah well i certainly see your point i wouldn't say it's it's a problem which is limited to the u.s alone it is a broader problem in the western world uh, and much of that has to do with with the continuous rising of a country like china and in the wake of china india and some other countries as well and and I mean, we should not forget that if you talk about China, we talk about 1.3 billion people. That's that's uh, more than four times the U.S. population, which means that, you know, statistically, uh, they would have uh, four times as much geniuses in, in China as well compared mm -hmm. to the U.S. And then I'm not even speaking of Europe. Mm -hmm. um, so far... Those, uh, because of the nature of the of society in China and how education is structured, most of those genius, if they could, 
went to the West, went to U.S. universities or, or, or European universities because those were still the best. But that may change in the future, and and well, I'm not sure how we can, you know, how we can address that issue. But that is certainly something which um, which and, and it actually goes to the heart of is we, we often speak about the challenges and, and threats to democracy as a concept now, for maybe for the first time uh, at a massive scale since the Second World War, uh, because of the internal fragmentation of the West. Uh, think about America first, think about Brexit, um, all these anti-EU parties in, in, in Europe, which are all part of one more general phenomenon whereby many people get uh, disappointed by the old parliamentary democracies, which we've always seen as pro providing the best ground also for developing of science and, and further knowledge because it stimulates discussion, it stimulates free exchange of opinion because nobody has to toe any particular line only for political reasons. Right. If, that, if that goes down the drain because democracies are internally weakened or try to weaken themselves for the wrong reasons, that is something that is that is a risk, but it goes way beyond uh, what you were uh, originally driving at. And, and unfortunately, I don't see an easy solution to that either. Is there any um, country in the world, maybe not by size, but maybe by uh, speaking per capita, that's um, moving forward in the space industry quicker than maybe people are paying attention to? You know, a small country out there that's making more waves um, than its size might warrant? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And actually, I mentioned two of them already. One one good example is Luxembourg. Mm -hmm. uh, Luxembourg is the size of Omaha uh, metropolitan area. So it, it, is, it is really a very minute player from the terms of size. But they have developed, one way or another, they have developed a very forward-looking approach and were very keen on latching on to new developments at a very early stage, which then, I mean, sometimes you, you, you shoot and you miss, uh, but they have sometimes, uh, as a consequence, resulted in major uh, benefits. Um, almost 40 years ago, they were about the first to uh, develop a private communication, uh, sorry, a private satellite communication operator in Luxembourg mm -hmm. with government funding. And the result is that as of today, that company is still one of the four or five leading uh, satellite companies in the world, and we're talking about a very small country. So Luxembourg is and, and space mining, they are obviously hoping to do the same, and it may not be next year or the next five years, it's, it's something that is it's a long-run planning, but it will be certainly interesting to, to be able to see 30 years onwards, whether they have indeed become a similarly huge player in space mining as they are currently in satellite communications. And the other example is the United Arab Emirates. Uh, uh, they are the first in the Arab world to, in this at this level, uh, pay any comprehensive and substantial attention and effort to uh, to move uh, to move to a new era in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, and part of that is also a very profound realization that hey, we are beginners at this point. So we for maybe next ten or twenty years, we do need. Uh, external expertise, and luckily we have the money to pay for that, but we don't want to be dependent upon external expertise forever and ever. So already now they are gearing up local programs 
which from their perspective then should ensure that 10 years from now they have their own engineers top of the bill able to develop new space technologies and spacecraft. And, and the United Arab Emirates, for your information, is, is 10 million inhabitants, but only 1 million of them are really uh, Emirati citizens. The other 9 million are, uh, are, are guest laborers, uh, temporary laborers from countries like Bangladesh and Pakistan and India and the Philippines and you name them. So that's also a small country making a relatively big splash right now. Mm-hmm. Do you see in the short term, um, do you anticipate any, any major, like, uh, leaps forward in any aspect of, the, of this? Of yeah, space? yeah. The space mining, as I said, is now in the phase of the one step back, and then hopefully soon we will make two steps forward, but soon can also be five or ten years from now. But where I expect really things to take off very, very soon is the space tourism thing, because we have my, – my, the reason for my optimism – is that we have a number of companies who already spent 10, 15 years working on it, and, um, you know, five, six, seven different technologies. And I think at this stage it's fair to say that nobody knows what the, what the golden egg is, what the killer technology is, but if you have five or six or seven different ones, it's pretty likely that at least one or two will survive. Uh, and again, I'm reminded of how aviation started off in the early 20th century. Uh, you know, you, on YouTube, you can still look up fancy old clips of all these early inventors, 19th century, late 19th century, early 20th century, who had the most fantastic contraptions with, with which they were trying to fly. And of course, most of them didn't work for whatever reason, and we may now laugh at them, but uh, they were serious at the time. But at that time, nobody knew what the killer technology was until the Wright brothers proved that they found the right balance. And look where we are with aviation today. So if you have six or eight totally different technologies, also all, all aiming to achieve the same kind of result, namely to bring humans safely into outer space and back, then I'm pretty confident with our general human ingenuity that at least one or two will actually turn out to be uh, economically and technically feasible and viable. Mm-hmm. Which ones? I don't have any idea. If, if I would have, I wouldn't be sitting here right now, obviously. But uh, but that it's one or two, I'm, I'm pretty positive about that. And again, that will happen in the next two or three years probably. Can you imagine, I, I imagine at some point there will be an accident you know, where someone gets injured or or dies in one of these. Do you think at this point would that cause a slowdown or halt in this, or is it just too going forward too quickly at this point? Um, the, it depends a little bit. Uh, I, I'm not sure whether you are aware, but we already had an accident. Virgin Galactic, which is one of those leaders in the suborbital domain, and it's Richard Branson's outfit, three or four years ago, uh, during a test flight uh, in the desert over over New Mexico, lost, or it was over California maybe, no, it was California actually, but they lost the life of one of the two test pilots who were testing the applica- who were testing the, the, the technology. Mm-hmm. Um, so they did an investigation and they found out that the results or the, the, the cause of the crash was that one switch uh, which did something in changing the angle of the wings, was flipped far too early, and as a consequence, the, the craft uh, destructed, 
and only one of the two pilots could get out safely with his uh, escape seat. Uh, the other one uh, was killed on impact. Now, because the, the cause of this accident was so clear-cut and could so easily be addressed, uh, you just make sure that that switch is never flipped uh, above a certain altitude, and uh, there's easy, very straightforward ways of making that, of guaranteeing that. Uh, it didn't lead to much of a layoff in all those clients who are already lining up to fly once the first flights get there. Mm -hmm. If the cause would have been a fundamental design flaw, it would have been a totally different picture because that is clearly something I think about the Boeing Max 737, um, which you may not easily um, get rid of, and that may in the long run of course, cause so many dis so much distress that many of the potential clients are then, uh, th you know, thinking uh, thinking twice before they still engage in that. So it depends very much on the nature of the accident. Uh, obviously, in this case, it was a pilot, so it was someone who made his life doing risky stuff. If it's an innocent passenger who just pays a fee to have some fun or to fly somewhere, that might make a different impact because then suddenly you and I could see ourselves in that situation. But it all depends upon the circumstances, and, and I sincerely hope that one or two fatalities would not kill the business or put it back too much. But that's at some point in time there will be fatalities. You know, I, I would say that's inevitable. Mm -hmm. that, that, that happens with all these things. So what, what excites you about the future of all of this? Um, well, some of the stuff that we already discussed in, in, in great detail. I mean, uh, space tourism, if, it, if it's going to be able to lower the cost of access to space, I would certainly be excited in taking one of those flights when I'm, once I can convince my wife that it's pretty safe. <laughs> um, so that's from a personal perspective. And more broadly speaking, well, I think space to a large extent has regained a lot of the special, mysterious attraction that it used to have back in the Apollo days. So the, 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 the attraction of this mysterious other world out there, uh, humans are made to investigate, are curious, want to know what's going on, um, and space is, is, is going to be basically forever a good field for doing that, I think. And, and that drives, you know, that drives my enthusiasm as well, also as a lawyer, because as I said before, uh, there are so many constant new developments that you never uh, have a moment of, okay, you know, we are there. We don't have anything to do as a lawyer right now because we are in a, in, in a perfect uh, in a perfect spot right now. You always behind the perfect spot in space law because there's so many new developments coming up. Hmm. Uh, where where can people find you uh, find you on the web? Well, they can either go to my uh, to my university, University of Nebraska, and the, the Faculty of Law, the College of Law, Nebraska Law. I have my own site there, and if you type in my name, you can easily find me. Or you can go to my commercial site, where I also have a lot of information about all the projects that I've run so far, um, which is black-holes.eu. Okay. So if you if somebody goes to that website, and there's also there's also a cross-link to the university website, and there's links to all sorts of other websites. Um, I have a few 30-minute uh, tutorials if people are really interested in some of the legal aspects for space colonization or space tourism uh, in, in like 30 minutes in layman's terms. Uh, 
uh, they, they can buy a tutorial which explains them what that basically is. Uh, so that's all at my, my company's website. All right. Um, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts on the future of space business or your company or anything else? I think it's finally, as a final remark, I think I'm, I'm optimistic about uh, the, the growth of space, which also means the growth of the need for space lawyers, which is both good for my business in general and uh, good for students who, who are now thinking about future careers because compared to now, uh, the absolute numbers may still be small 10 years from now, but it will be five times as much space lawyers we need 10 years from now than we do now. So it's it's a nice point if, if you're young and enthusiastic about space and about law. It's a nice point of entry to start a career in that direction now. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, thank you for speaking with me. You're more than welcome. Thank you for listening. You can find more podcasts like this on your favorite podcast feed under the title Spacewalks Money Talks. That includes Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. One great way to support me is to rate my podcasts, either good or bad. You can find more fascinating information at SpacewalksMoneyTalks.com, on YouTube under Spacewalks Money Talks, on Facebook under Spacewalks Money Talks, on Instagram under Spacewalks Money Talks, and on Twitter at SpacewalksMT. Don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I recommend newly published books. The subscription box is on my webpage. Thank you for listening.